0: from a, a new book project I've been working on over the course of the past three years, I guess. Um, and it is a somewhat, I apologize for being somewhat of a formal talk, uh, uh, but, but well, anyway, I, hope, I hope it excites your interest. British Weeks Everywhere excoriated the Treaty of Utrecht signed in April 1713 that put an end to the war of the Spanish Succession. They denounced the many infamous steps that have of late been taken to the dishonoring and completely ruining our country and the Protestant interests in Europe. They bemoaned the infamous peace secured with as much treasure as would have finished a glorious war. Above all, they felt the peace had been an imperial betrayal. The British and their allies had fought the war for Spain and all her Indian treasures, but had achieved little despite the famous victories at Blenheim, Ramones, and Maltaque. So why did the, Wh- uh, the Whigs believe British imperial interests had been betrayed by the Treaty of Utrecht? Why did they think that a peace that had given the British Gibraltar, Menorca, Nova Scotia, St. Kitts, and the lucrative asientum, the exclusive right to sell slaves to the Spanish Empire, why did they think that was an imperial disaster? What is the larger significance of this vitriolic debate for our understanding of the nature and contours of the British Empire? Unfortunately, the existing scholarship makes it very difficult to answer these questions. Scholars have either insisted there was a single, coherent British imperial policy over which there was little party conflict, or there was much party conflict that had little to do with imperial policy. By and large, scholars who have not focused on high politics have highlighted the coherence of British imperial strategy. Britain's empire, notes Sir John Eliot in discussing its contours post-1689, was to be a maritime and commercial empire. The British, he says, aimed to create an empire that was the antithesis of Spain's land based empire conquest. England, agrees Julian Hoppet, had an imperial plan, singular, that was economic in conception, though with important subsidiary strategic dimensions. Political historians, by contrast, argue that the Treaty of Utrecht was a Tory, but not an imperial peace. It is doubtful whether any other matter so continuously aggravated relations between Whig and Tory from 1708 to 1712 as the making of peace, insists Jeffrey Holmes. But the issues that divided the two parties were whether or not there should be a bourbon on the Spanish throne, and whether or not the peace ending the war should be negotiated jointly with all the members of the Grand Alliance. The empire plays no role in this party political analysis. Um, So that's the basic received wisdom. Uh, Against these views, then, I insist that the struggle over the peace of Utrecht was a party political struggle over the future of the British Empire. The Whigs committed themselves to a notion of integrative empire. Because they rejected the notion that property was finite, they were relatively indifferent to territorial gain. For them, the War of the Spanish Succession was all about preventing bourbon universal monarchy. And the key to preventing bourbon hegemony was opening the markets of Spanish America to British manufacturers. The best means to create a British commercial empire, they believed, was economic integration of the existing British colonial possessions in order to take advantage of free trade in South America. Tories, by contrast, committed themselves to territorial empire. Not only did they insist on territorial gains for the Treaty of Utrecht, but they also erected the South Sea Company in order to found a new British empire in South America. The party conflict over empire conducted not only at the level of high politics, but also in popular addresses, commercial petitions, grub street squibs, and the increasingly popular newspapers of the day has profound implications for the ways in which we should conceptualize and narrate the history of the British Empire in the long 18th century. So that's what I'm proposing to do. Uh, and now I'm try to do it. Buoyed by spectacular military victories at Blenheim, 1704, Rameley, 1706, Oudenarde 178, and Lille, 1708, the Whig Junto government responded increasingly to French feelers for peace in the spring of 1709. They seized this moment to enunciate their aspirations for a peace that would put an end to the war of the Spanish succession. The Whigs demanded a peace that not only would prevent the possibility of French hegemony in Europe, but also entrench the Whig imperial vision. The Whigs insisted that the Bourbon see the entire monarchy of Spain, that Louis XIV agreed to the demolition of Dunkirk, that a barrier be erected between France and the United Provinces, that the French agree to support the Hanoverian succession as necessary preliminaries before any further negotiation. Despite all of Marlborough's military victories, the Whigs had absolutely no dreams of territorial expansion. The Whigs did not, however, focus on Europe at the expense of the empire. Economic concerns were not sacrificed, as one recent Cambridge scholar has suggested, in favor of strategic benefits. At the same time that Marlborough and Townsend put forth their preliminary demands for peace, the British Board of Trade, under the leadership of the Whig Earl of Sunderland, advanced commercial and imperial demands. James Stanhope, with the urging of Sunderland and the Board of Trade, negotiated a commercial treaty with the Habsburg claimant to the Spanish throne, Charles III, that excluded the French from trading directly or indirectly to the Spanish West Indies, and not only lowered the Spanish duties, but got us all the advantages we could desire of trading directly to the West Indies. Had this treaty taken effect, opined one later great polemicist, had not we been betrayed to France what flourishing and glorious circumstances would the nation be in. Instead of a territorial empire, the Whigs demanded a peace that would make the Atlantic world a protected market for English manufacturers. What, then, was the Whig vision for the British Empire? What kind of an empire did they hope to secure in the treaty they were negotiating in 17910? The Whigs advocated an integrated commercial empire in which the key to prosperity and power was human labor. Unlike most Tories, the Whigs did not believe that the world's economic resources were finite, delimited by the amount of land in the world. Britain's economic future depended on the value that labor could add to raw materials, not in the monopolizing the raw materials themselves. During the War of the Spanish Succession, the Whigs gave their labor-based political economy an imperial twist. Since at least the 1680s, Whig polemicists had been arguing that labor rather than land was the basis of property. Their property was therefore infinite, and the territorial empire made little no sense. John Locke was typical of the later 17th century Whigs, in that he did not think that labor in the Americas was worth nearly as much as labor in the British Isles. In the waste of America, he reckoned, a thousand acres yield the needy and wretched inhabitants as many conveniencies of life as ten acres of equally fertile land in Devonshire. Many early 18th century Whigs thought rather differently. In 1708, in the British Empire in America, the tract that more than any other detailed the Whig imperial vision instantiated in the 1709 Barrier Treaty, the Whig polemicist John Oldmixon revised Locke's assessment. While Oldmixon, like Locke, believed that labor, not land, was the basis of property, he was far more optimistic about the political economic significance of the Americas. Two decades of development had radically improved the value of Britain's colonies in America. A labor in our American colonies, Old Mixon argued, is of more advantage to England, though out of it, than any 130 of the like kind can be in it. Old Mixon's statistical analysis revealed that one hand in the plantations is as good as 20 employed at home. Old Mixon, unlike Locke, prioritized colonial labor over labor in the British Isles. Old Mixon argued, along with most Whigs, that economic growth depended on a complex interplay between production and consumption. It was not enough merely to produce goods. The British economy depended on consumers with increasingly high wages and increasingly sophisticated tastes to generate demand for its manufacturers. British colonists in America had a voracious demand for British manufacturers. Given its emphasis on consumption as well as on production, it was hardly surprising that Mixon argued for an integrated British empire one in which the interests and activities of the colonists in the Americas were at least as important as the inhabitants of the British Isles. He rejected any notion of the subordination of the periphery to the metropole, so central to most scholarly accounts of the first British Empire. Oldmitson shared with Edward Littleton, whom he quoted liberally and approvingly, the belief that the colonies must be treated as they had been before the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, as a part of England, rather than as foreigners and aliens. Given this integrated imperial vision, one that would find echoes later in the 18th century in the works of the Whigs Thomas Powell, Benjamin Franklin, and Adam Smith, Old Wixon emphasized the economic value of, of all American uh, possessions. The Whig economic, this Whig economic worldview did not rest on territorial possessions. Instead, it relied on exports of British manufacturers driving the engine of British economic growth. The Whigs advocated informal empire. So the West Indies were vital not only for what they could produce, but also because of the vital role they could play in funneling British manufactured goods into Spanish America. The Whigs wanted a manufacturing empire that stood in stark contrast to the Spanish imperial achievement. The authoritarian extractive empire of the Spanish had so weakened that kingdom, that Spaniards were forced to witness a great European struggle over their own future. The Spanish had rested content with importing the fabulous riches of the Mexican and Peruvian mines, rather than developing their own manufacturing sector. Despite their vast imperial riches, thought Sir Henry Shears, the Spaniards were in a calamitous degree of poverty. This was because they disdained that labor which was the ultimate key to wealth. The Spanish, according to Shears, had such a contempt of labor of all kinds that the poorest Spaniard would rather starve at home or transport himself than submit to any low or servile occupation. The Spanish were thus unable to export anything to their vast colonies in the Indies of their own manufactures. From being masters of the product of the riches of the Indies, Shears concluded, they are become, in effect, barely the carriers thereof, and the channel, as I may say, to convey it as a river to other more wise and industrious people. And in fact, that's precisely the argument which was at the heart of Mandeville's uh, uh, Fable of the Bees. Uh, which which he, of course, uh, republished in 1713, the year uh, of the signing of the Treaty of Utrecht. Commitment to an integrated imperial economy, driven by manufacturing exports, and an ever-escalating cycle of production and consumption motivated both the Whig war strategy and the Whig war aims. Whigs had no desire for territorial expansion. Britain's existing colonies, they believed, had the potential for almost infinite economic expansion. Rather, the Whigs wanted to put an end to the possibility of a French universal monarchy. The Whigs wanted to prevent the French from using profits generated through exclusive trade with Spanish America to finance their war machine. If Spain and Spanish America shall be left in the possession of the French king by a peace, warned one Whig, mere poverty will soon bring England and all Europe under the French dominion. We aim not at at conquest, another Whig later explained, our trade giving us all the wealth we could desire. In 179-1710, then, the Whigs were on the brink of signing a peace that would secure their imperial vision. They hoped for a world in which British manufacturers, whether textiles produced in Lancashire or ships and food made in New England, would drive unprecedented and sustained economic growth. They had no interest in seizing the Spanish silver mines in South America. Rather, they negotiated a peace that would exclude the French from the Spanish-American trade and would, they hoped, pave the way for the penetration of British manufacturers into the vast markets of Spanish America. The Whigs had an integrated imperial strategy, one that placed as much emphasis on the Atlantic world as on Europe. After the heady victory of Malplaquet, the Whigs were on the brink of implementing their imperial vision. The French, of course, did not sign the Whig Peace in 179 or 1710. The unexpected apotheosis of a relatively obscure Oxford cleric, Henry Scheverell, thwarted the Whig plans. Queen Anne took the opportunity provided by the widespread rioting on behalf of this high church cleric to throw over the Whig ministers who had been running the war and install a new Tory ministry led by Robert Harley. The Queen dissolved the largely Whig parliament and the Tories secured an overwhelming electoral majority. Harley and his allies acted quickly to implement a new Tory imperial strategy. The Tories quickly denounced the Whig peace preliminaries for granting too little to Britain. The advantages stipulated for Britain bear no proportion to the part she had in the war, explained Henry St. John to the Earl of Orrery. The Tory ambassadors to the United Provinces, Lord Ravi thought, the Whig preliminaries pernicious. We have been the dupes of the war, he fumed. We must take great care that we are not so of the peace. The Tories pursued a two-pronged strategy as soon as they came to power in 1710. First, they sought to end the war that they believed was part of a grand Whig plot to promote social revolution in Britain. Second, they wanted to secure a massive new British empire in South America that would forever secure Britain as a leading European power, and also create a permanent Tory political monopoly in Britain itself. Many Tories were convinced that the Whigs were promoting social revolution. Whigs supported the war, they believed, in large part because its escalating costs and increasingly punishing taxes was destroying the landed interest. At the time of the revolution of 1688-89, the Tory Secretary of State, Henry St. John, later recalled, the moneyed interest was not yet a rival able to cope with the landed interest, either in the nation or in Parliament. All that had now changed, Sinjin informed Orri in 1709, because we have now been 20 years engaged in the most expensive wars that Europe ever saw. The whole burden of this St Sinjin was sure was paid by the landed interest during the whole time. The result was that a new interest has been created out of their fortunes and a sort of property not known 20 years ago was now increased to be almost equal to the terra firma of our island. According to St. John, the landed men are become poor and dispirited. Tory lands had paid for Whig wars, complained the examiner. If the war continues some years longer, warned the authors of this Tory newspaper, a landed man will be little better than a farmer at rack rent to the army and to the public funds. Once in power, the Tories, by all accounts, sought to undo the social revolution. The new Tory government, observed their former colleague Daniel Finch of Nottingham, garnered popular support by using the lure of a present peace and the prospect of a future plenty. In particular, they promised to lower the land tax. Tory reverend divines complained, one Whig polemicist, in vain against trade as if it were the cause of all the schisms and heresies of the world, recommending instead the old patriarchal ways of cow keeping and agriculture as more innocent employments. Were. The Tories soon discovered that they could not simply try to unmake the financial revolution. Almost immediately after the Tories took power, Robert Harley had to face a financial crisis of unprecedented proportions. British investors, who until 1710 were largely Whig investors, those who lent huge sums of money to the government to help service the debt, were well aware of Tory social proclivities. They responded to the fall of the Whig Jogto ministers by shutting their wallets, um, and the Bank of England famously refused to loan money to the Tory government in 1710, uh, making it impossible for them, to, uh, for them to, meet, uh, to meet their financial demands. The new Tory government was faced with a terrible conundrum. They wanted to put an end to the social revolutionary pressures engendered by the of the Spanish succession, but they detested the Whig peace terms. In addition, they faced a frightening international financial crisis, that threatened to bring their new government down and emasculate any plans to advance the Tory warriors. What were they to do? It was at this point that Robert Harley devised a scheme that would simultaneously solve the credit crisis, save the Tory ministry, and implement a Tory vision of a centralized, land-based British empire. Harley came up with a plan that would pave the way for a Tory peace in which Britain would get its just rewards for its heroic efforts in the war. Harley's solution was to create a British territorial empire in South America that would be supported by a massive new financial venture, the South Sea Company. The plan was soon the talk of the town, in Britain, and all Europe. Newspapermen, pamphleteers, company board members, and the huge range of the middling sort who owned some portion of the national debt all contributed to the wide-ranging discussions of Harley's new company. Harley had a long-standing interest in creating a British Empire in South America. At the same time, he was building up support for his doomed national land bank scheme in 1696. He began gathering information about the Spanish gold mines near Valdivia in Chile. In 175 or 176, Dr. Moses Stringer, who himself was deeply involved in extractive mining, floated a plan for a Tory South American company that would include new acquisitions to Lord Rapi that may have also crossed Harley's desk. Harley did not come up with the South Sea scheme overnight. In May 1711, having just recovered from the assassination attempt by the deranged Frenchman, the Marquis de Harley ushered the South Sea bill through the House of Commons. Soon, all in the city were in agitation about the South Sea trade. The South Sea company was from the first a Tory company with imperial aspirations. Prominent Whigs, men who had supported the book 1709 peace plans, voted against Harley's bill in the House of Commons. Unsurprisingly, Tories greeted the passage of the bill with outspoken enthusiasm. In fact, to ensure that the new company would be a Tory company, the Queen was granted the right to name the company's board of directors. The group included the Tory director of the Royal African Company and member of the Board of Trade, Arthur Moore. The Tory Hamburg merchant, John Bohr, whose brother was a member of the, the Ulta Tory October Club. The Tory merchant, Francis Stratford, who had long experience of, of trading for, uh, for New Spain by way of Cadiz and Sevilla. The Tory financiers, Sir Richard Bohr, Sir John Lambert, and Harcourt Master. And of course, the Tory Secretary of State, Henry Synchon. St and named Oxford himself governor of the South Sea Company, with the new Tory convert in East India Merchant Sir James Bateman as sub-governor, and the former land bank commissioner and Tory East India Merchant Sir Samuel ongley as deputy governor. Thirteen of the new directors of the South Sea Company were men who had unsuccessfully stood as part of a Tory slate for the directorship of the Bank of England and East India Company earlier in 1711. The new South Sea Company enjoyed a directorate that was not only heavily Tory, but also expert in overseas and imperial trade. Oxford designed the South Sea Company to promote the Tory imperial vision. The South Sea Company was never meant, as most scholars maintain, merely as a facade behind which the Tories could continue the business of financial manipulation. The directors, propagandists, and politicians who supported the company overwhelmingly subscribed to the Tory political economic vision. Whereas the supporters of the Whig piece in 1709 and the Whig theorists of empire, like John Oldmixon had wanted to build an integrative empire based on labor and manufacturing, the Tories wanted an authoritarian territorial empire based on extracting the mineral wealth of South America. (coughs) Tories believed the South Sea scheme provided Britain with an opportunity to reverse the imperial errors of Henry VII and Henry VIII. The early Tudors, supporters of the South Sea Company believed, had abdicated to the Spanish the opportunity to seize the fabulously rich gold and silver mines of South America. It was the great oversight and neglect of Henry VII that rejected the offers of Christopher Columbus, a pine one South Sea Company advocate. Had the first Tudor monarch not neglected this opportunity, what wealth and riches would the mines of gold and silver have brought into our country? From the first, the Tory directors of the South Sea Company planned to establish a British territorial presence in South America. The credibility and viability of the South Sea Company depended on making a settlement on the Spanish continent of America maintained any struggle. Settlement was necessary, as all of the defenders of the South Sea Company implied, in order to secure the real treasures, gold and silver. Where did the South Sea Company hope to establish the South American settlements? By the middle of the summer of 1711, the South Sea Company appears to have for a southern cone strategy. First, the South Sea Company proposed to seize Buenos Aires, significantly situated on the Rio de la Plata, the Silver River, from the Spanish. Great Britain cannot make a settlement in any place upon the face of the earth from once reasonably it may expect to reap so many advantages as from one situated upon the River of Plate, gushed one correspondent with the Earl of Oxford. The Royal Africa Company director, Thomas Pindar, agreed that a British Buenos Aires would exceed in succeeding ages the richest colonies belonging to this kingdom. The chief reason why Buenos Aires would become so fabulously wealthy, the main aim of the Tory South Sea Company investor, uh, investors was that any nation settled upon the River Plate as a very commodious and certain way to the Portuguese gold mines in Brazil. The former pirate, Lionel Wafer, who had recently been introduced to Oxford by the Tory Duke of Leeds, thought a base on the River Plate would soon allow the British to control the great quantities of gold and silver that was being shipped down the river. The South Sea Company wanted a second colonial outpost at Valdivia in Chile. Valdivia thought the active East India merchant and imperial projector, Thomas Bowery, was the most proper port for us to take from the Spaniards in the South Seas. Predictably, for someone long interested in piracy, Bowery well, we thought Valdivia would be a good vantage point from which to disrupt the whole Spanish trade in the South Seas, that is, to seize the Spanish ships. More importantly though, Valdivia produces the most gold of any place in the South Seas. The South Sea Company hoped to establish a third coast in between Buenos Aires and Valdivia, near the Straits of Magellan. Bowery envisaged such a harbor as being necessary primarily for refreshment of our men, repairing of our ships after so very long and troublesome a voyage. One of the South Sea Company's defenders had more ambitious plans. This defender of the company wanted the Tierra del Fuego to be re- renamed Nova Britannia, because in time, no plantation beyond the seas would be more gainful to us in furnishing this kingdom with a neighbor, neighboring gold and silver. The South Sea Company was always designed to work hand in hand with the Tory Royal African Company. The long-time imperialist and naval man, Sir George Bing was not alone in asking whether the South Sea directors would consider how to make the slave trade of Guinea useful to the company. Thomas Pindar proposed on the second expedition of the South Seas that the company should receive on board 1,000 choice Negroes, which would be of great service in the settlements, presumably to work in the new silver and gold mines. It was therefore no surprise that when the Tories did gain the Asiompton contract, for providing African slaves in the Spanish plantations as part of their peace negotiations in 1713, the South Sea Company agreed to work hand in hand with the Royal African Company to fulfill the terms of the contract. The South Sea Company hoped to create a fabulously wealthy British Empire in the southern cone of South America. Unlike the Whig Empire that sought to use British manufactured goods to penetrate Spanish-American markets, the Tories wanted to create their own territorial empire. They did not want to trade for Spanish bullion. They wanted to discover their own minds and conquer others from the Spanish and Portuguese. The Tories did not envisage an alternative to the Spanish Atlantic Empire. They wanted to mimic it and then to take it over. Oxford designed his new company not only to create a vast territorial empire in South America, but also to solve Britain's immediate credit crisis and reverse the social revolutionary effects of the Whig Financial Revolution. The South Sea Company, in its founding, incorporated the proprietors of over 9 million pounds of British Britain's debts to carry on a trade to the South Seas. At a stroke, hundreds of holders of proprietors of the public debt were compelled to become stockholders in the new Tory South Sea Company, with a guaranteed return of 6%. Oxford had designed a scheme that made hundreds of holders of the national debt, many of them Whigs, interested in the success of a Tory empire in South America and the scheme promised to restore national and international confidence in the financial wherewithal of the British government. Once the company, in tandem with the British government, had established a territorial empire in South America, the benefit to the nation would be greater still. This South American commerce, predicted one of the company's apologists, will open such a vein of riches, will return such wealth, as in a few years will make us more than sufficient to mend for the vast expenses we have been at since the revolution. The South Sea Company and its associated territorial empire would allow Britain to pay down its debts and reverse the social revolutionary consequences of the wake war strategy. Oxford and the Tories always intended the South Sea Company to be a real trading and imperial concern. Oxford himself had had long-term interest in creating a British Empire in South America. He created a South Sea Company directorate filled with Tory merchants, expert in long-distance trade and imperial projects. He had, it is true, used the financial crisis of 1710-11 to generate widespread support for his ingenious scheme. And I think we have recent experience of of governments using financial crises to generate political support. Um, And he did design the company to provide a quick fix for Britain's credit crisis. But Oxford and his friends in no way saw these two goals as incompatible. They formed a coherent ideological program. Immediately after creating the company, Oxford had begun plans for an expeditionary force to attack Spanish America. In September 1710, Harley was hard at work about the expedition to America, hoping to have it launched before October, because it was not advisable to begin an expedition towards South America later than that. In the event, that early expedition never took shape. By the following year, plans began to take shape in earnest. In January 1712, the company's court of directors wrote to Oxford that, in order to make such settlements in South America as planned, the queen needed to assist the company with a sufficient sea and land force with provisions and other necessaries. A sufficient land and sea force, they made clear, meant 20 men of war with 40,000 land forces and 40 transport ships from 250 to 300 tons each. In March 1712, Queen Anne gave the final approval for a squadron sufficient for making settlements in America for the benefit of the South Sea Company. In the spring of 1712, the Tories launched their South American empire. The Tories who came to power after the ministerial revolution of 1710 rejected the Whig vision of an integrated manufacturing empire. And what I mean by integrated, I mean, I mean both politically integrated and economically integrated. Elsewhere, and, and in, uh, in the forthcoming book, I'm going to intend to show that the Whig vision included representation in, in, in an imperial parliament for, uh, for overseas colonies. That was part of the Whig plan. Instead, Oxford and, the Tory, and his Tory allies launched their own imperial program. The Tories made their new South Sea Company the linchpin of the strategy. Oxford and his friends intended to use the South Sea Company to establish a new British Empire in South America. They based their breathtaking vision on their own understanding of political economy. They believed that the key to wealth was controlling the world's finite natural resources. They did not want to provide an alternative to the Spanish Empire in the Americas. They wanted to supplant it. The Tories were confident their success would allow them to halt, and then reverse the corrosive social effects of the Whig engineered financial revolution. A Tory territorial empire would once again make Britain safe through rule by landed gentlemen. Now, the Tories did not, in fact, create a territorial empire in the southern cone of South America. The overwhelming, uh, uh, the overwhelming majority of the inhabitants of Argentina and Chile still speak Spanish, rather than English, as their primary language. Britain's Atlantic Empire in the 18th century remained largely north of the Equator. But the Tory failure to create a territorial empire in South America was not for lack of effort. The South Sea Company was intended to be the commercial arm of Britain's new empire. that it was never able to bring back fabulous riches from the South Seas and much more to do with political developments than with the company's initial design. The Tory ministry's rapid success in bringing the French to the negotiating table appeared to make the British expedition against Spanish America unnecessary. The Tory government had insisted in their initial gambit for peace that the French agree to granting the British the island of St. Christopher, St. Kitts, in the Caribbean, the Asiento, or exclusive contract for selling slaves to Spanish America for 30 years, and an extent of territory in and around the river plate. In addition, the British were to be given certain places to be named in the Treaty of Peace that would further secure the British trade in the Spanish West Indies. By November 1712, the Earl of Stratford was certain that the Spanish had agreed to give a place in the River Plate. No wonder the Dutch were furious that the British were not merely establishing a trade with Spanish America, but fully intended intended the planting of several new colonies. The Tories, of course, famously secured an exclusive contract to import African slaves to Spanish America. The Tories reasoned that the combination of the Asiento, Buenos Aires, and perhaps colonies in Valdivia and on the Tierra del Fuego, excuse me, Nova Britannia, would secure a potent imperial base for the South Sea Company. Just as the Tories were ostensibly securing the future of the British Empire in Spanish America, so they were also securing other territorial advantages for Britain in the Treaty of Utrecht. Whereas the Whigs had sought no new territorial concessions in 1709, the Tories sought and gained them throughout the world. St. John uh, uh, St. John, now Viscount Bolingbroke, successfully insisted that Britain retained possession of Menorca and Gibraltar despite Dutch objections. The Tories also successfully negotiated the return of Hudson's Bay and St. Kitts and the acquisition of Acadia. The Tories believed that they had achieved all their goals. They had secured British territorial acquisitions in the Mediterranean, North America, and the Caribbean. They had founded a British Empire in the southern cone of South America. And they had negotiated a conclusion to a misguided war that helped their trading rivals abroad and benefited the Whigs at home. They had, they believed, secured what the British people wanted and needed. When the news arrived in London in April 1713 that the peace had been signed in Utrecht, the whole British nation seemed to express its approbation. In the ensuing months, well over 200 separate groups of Britons submitted addresses celebrating the peace, not a few emphasizing the many advantages, both territorial and mercantile, that Britain gained by the peace. Tory celebrations were, however, short-lived. Not only did the House of Commons reject the commercial treaty that the Tories had negotiated with France, but the new Bourbon monarchy in Spain successfully thwarted for- Tory plans for empire in South America. The Spanish, having granted the Asiento contract and the promise of allowing one British ship to trade with Spanish America customs-free, now balked at making the territorial concession so central to the Tory strategy. The Spanish negotiating team the Earl of Lexington complained, were refusing to honor agreements based on the most solemn assurances, although how he could exactly know that is unclear because the Earl of Lexington spoke neither Spanish nor French nor did he have good Latin and he had absolutely no German. So how he communicated is a little bit unclear. Uh, The Spanish Bolingbroke understood all too well and made sure that the peace treaty ending the war was signed first so that the Queen would be at their mercy with respect to that of commerce. Bolingbroke could gnash his teeth and issue threats but Britain had demobilized. After celebrating the peace, the Tory ministers were in no position to begin a new war. When Matthew Pryor pleaded with Louis XIV for help in, enforce, help in enforcing the agreements, Britain's, uh, the agreements to Britain's territories in Spanish America, he was told by the French king that our interest in Madrid was much stronger than his own. Spanish diplomatic ingenuity put a halt to the Tory plans for territorial empire in South America. In April 1713, Oxford and his government thought they had secured a Tory peace. Above all, they had secured for Britain a territorial foothold in the southern cone of Spanish America. Buenos aides and the other potential British bases in South America had been the fulcrum around which the Tories designed their strategy. Buenos Aires was supposed to provide the key to mineral riches as well as providing an important way station, way station for the transportation of slaves from Africa. This was the commercial basis upon which the the South Sea Company directors could promise its investors fabulous returns. That the Tories failed to secure territorial concessions in South America was an unexpected and unmitigated disaster. Forgetting the enormity of that disaster has made it impossible to understand the Tory imperial strategy of the early 18th century. The British struggle over the aims and achievements of the War of the Spanish Succession needs to be understood as a party political conflict over the direction and contours of the British Empire. The Whigs had sought to establish an integrative empire favorable to British manufacturing. The Whigs wanted to extend the informal tendrils of their commercial networks, but had little or no interest in seizing war territory for the British sovereign. The Tories, by contrast, had wanted to create an extractive, coercive, and territorial British empire in South America. Their empire, they hoped, would soon rival and eventually displace the Spanish empire. The Tories saw nothing wrong with the Spanish imperial model. Instead, they reasoned they should seize the imperial opportunity that Henry VII had let pass in the 15th century. So what, then, are the broader implications for this story? What do we gain by recovering the story of the failed Tory project for establishing a British Empire in the southern coast? It seems to me that this story has broad implications for the ways in which we should think about and write about the history of the British Empire. First, there was no single moment in which the British became authoritarian imperialists. Historians have long sought the moment in which the British turned away from liberty-loving proponents of a soft commercial empire into the authoritarians who ruled with such a brutal hand in India and sub-Saharan Africa. Indeed, historians have been so eager to uncover the moment of this remarkable epistemic shift that they found several of them. In a recent and important work that theorizes in innovative ways the nature of the early empire, Alison Games had discovered a cosmopolitan impulse lay behind English expansion in the 16th and 17th centuries. That initial cosmopolitanism derived from English weakness in the 16th century, Gabes assures us, was highly decentralized. By the 1650s, however, there was a pronounced shift in the nature of the empire. This shift challenged the relevance and necessity of an accommodating demeanor involved a twofold turn towards centralization and the use of coercion and force. The empire, in games of view, had taken a decisive authoritarian turn by the 1650s. Historians more focused on the tumultuous events of the 1760s and 1770s have detected an authoritarian turn in their period. Tim Green, for example, in his exciting account of the American Revolution as Bourgeois Consumer Revolution, has identified the period roughly from 1757 to 1764 as the moment when Americans began to realize that they were in fact colonists, perhaps nothing more than colonists, Subjects of the Crown who did not quite measure up to the men and women who happened to reside in England. Prior to this period, Americans had been pro- become prosperous without intolerable interference by the representatives of an ancien regime. This absence of coercion in the period before the late 1750s allowed commerce to bring Americans into a closer, more harmonious relationship with the mother country. The sense of coercion then that began to emerge in the later 1750s was accelerated by the passage of the, the long list of, of uh, litany of events that used to be central. I guess to the old special subject here uh, on the American crisis, but I gather isn't is being taught anymore. Uh, uh, alas, uh, and in any event, uh, the argument, uh, Tim Green's argument, is that in the 1760s and 1770s the British Empire became authoritarian, whereas it had been uh, a maritime, commercial, and free before that. For others, the period from 1780 to 1830 was the crucial moment in which the British Empire began to establish overseas despotism, which mirrored in many ways the politics of neo-absolutism and the Holy Alliance of contemporary Europe. Before that time, Sir Christopher Bailey has maintained the British Empire was a ragged and conflict-ridden community of separate interests, loose control from the center during that period, and encouraged the development of expansive settler capitalism. He maintains. Scotland, of course, was an exception. For Ireland and much of the rest of the Western Empire, centrifugal forces remained prominent, predominant. The new British Empire that emerged after 1780 was characterized by a form of aristocratic military government supporting a viceregal autocracy by a well-developed imperial style which emphasized hierarchy and racial subordination and by the patronage of indigenous land elites. Constructive, authoritarian, and ideological British imperialism in Bailey's view came of age only in the years between 1783 and 1820. Now, one could go on, uh, uh, citing those who see an authoritarian turn in the 1680s, and others who point to the 1880s. My story of the competing Whig and Tory imperial projects of the early 18th century, however, suggests that the problem of a British authoritarian empire has been badly conceptualized. In a sense, all of these scholars are right to see an authoritarian turn in their periods. See, I'm a very irenic historian. Um, They are wrong, however, to insist on sea changes, epistemic shifts, and pivotal moments of of vindictive legislation. Instead, I am suggesting the contours of the British Empire were always shaped by social and political contestation. Some Britons always had an authoritarian impulse. Others, who were no less (coughs) imperialist, wanted a more integrative and less coercive empire. There were always some Britons who wanted an empire that was commercial, maritime, and free. Others wanted a coercive, centralized, blue water empire. Second, political economic conflict rather than mercantilist consensus shaped the British Empire. Mercantilism was from the publication of the influential Cambridge history of the British Empire. And that's all the bad guys come from Cambridge. Um, uh, Thought to be the organizing principle of the so-called first British Empire. Recently, historians of the British Empire have confidently uh, uh, returned to the notion of a mercantilist imperialist consensus. New is that Hedier describes mercantilism as self-evidently a coherent system in the 17th century. England, Tom Devine has recently pointed out, imposed mercantilist regulations. David Armitage has perceived the existence of a mercantilist colonial system. From the glorious revolution until the defeat of Napoleonic France at Waterloo, proclaims Kenneth Morgan, the political economy of the British Empire was underpinned by a mercantilist framework. What then was the, were the organizing principles of mercantilism according to these scholars? What were the concepts about which everyone agreed in the early modern period? The overwhelming majority of scholars agree about the fundamental underlying concept of mercantilism. Mercantilists all believed in the limits to growth. Mercantilists believed they lived in a world of scarcity because property and value was defined exclusively with reference to land, in which economic life was necessarily one of vicious competition. They believed, most scholars assert confidently, that trade was a zero sum game. These scholars, I have suggested, are not wrong to believe that many subscribe to the zero-sum views they have called mercantilism. There was, however, no mercantilist consensus. Scholars, by assuming a mercantilist consensus, have obscured the degree to which the shaping of empire was a conscious political choice. In their view, because all governments share the same goals, the only plausible explanation for empires taking on different shapes were the constraints of environment and opportunity. I show, however, that different parties with different political economic outlooks sought to create different kinds of empires. The Tory imperialists wanted an extractive empire in South America because they were committed to the notion that there was a finite amount of wealth in the world and that it was far better that the wealth be in British rather than Dutch or Spanish hands. The Tories did not achieve ideological hegemony. The Whigs wanted an integrative manufacturing empire devoid of more territorial possessions because they believed that labor rather than land created value. Since they believed that property was potentially infinite and that manufacturing was the best way to generate national wealth, (coughs) the Whigs thought the Tory imperial scheme was fundamentally misguided. By and right, then, the best way to understand the ways in which Britons shaped their empire is to pay greater attention to those fundamental political economic complexes. Britons were divided more by differing political economic conceptions than they were by whether they lived in the metropole or in the periphery. Finally. The contest over the empire in the early 18th century may point to some limits of the so-called new imperial history. The achievements of the new imperial history have, of course, been many and varied. We now understand a great deal more than we did before about issues of identity and belonging in the British Empire. The new imperial history that is grounded on difference has alerted us to strategies of domination not accounted for in the older histories. Nevertheless, the focus on the ideologies and representations of difference the social, cultural, and epistemological networks, and the insistence on the on the engagement only with the softer disciplines of literature, anthropology, and history, the history of medicine and psychiatry, geography, art history, and cultural studies, risks occluding the central sites of political contestation in the 18th century. Contests over institutions were fundamental to the shaping of the 18th-century empire. This was true for three reasons. First. A focus on the ideologies of difference risks making illegible the Whig's strategy on integrative empire, since that strategy depended so heavily on informal economic links. The new imperial history has invariably focused on areas where British had territorial sovereignty, not on areas of informal empire. So the new cultural history of empire focuses on the traditional areas of the map shaded red. Second. By insisting on the weakness of British imperial institutions, a narrowly cultural approach to empire risks making incomprehensible the choices made to evade institutional regulation. Piracy only existed because trade trade regulations were frequently enforced. Third, institutions like the Board of Trade helped to structure colonial societies. It was the possibility of securing interest from institutions, as Heather Welland has recently shown, that helped to fork lobbies that were so central to the 18th century British imperial polity. So why then did the Whigs think that the Peace of Utrecht was an imperial betrayal? The answer, it should now be clear, is that the Whigs rejected the Tory view of empire. The Tories had negotiated with France in order to create the possibility of a significantly expanded British territorial empire. They succeeded in taking control of Menorca, Gibraltar, Hudson's Bay, Nova Scotia, and St. Kitts. They also secured the lucrative asiento contract to supply Spanish America with slaves for 30 years. Perhaps more importantly, they had failed to secure, as they had intended from 1711, a territorial base in the southern cone for the South Sea Company. The Tory imperialists were committed to a political economic vision in which value came exclusively from the land, what could be extracted from the land, and what could be produced on the land. They believed that value was finite, and that Britain, having fought heroically at great expense, deserved to increase its share of the world's scarce resources. The Whigs rejected all of these assumptions. They believed that labor, not land, was the basis of value. Britain's future, they believed, lay not in seizing more territory, but in finding outlets for its manufacturers. Thus, they wanted an integrated empire in which North America, the West Indies, and the British Isles all produced and manufactured what was the most efficient. They thought the Tories had bungled the peace because they were fixated on territory and fears of the Dutch as Britain's greatest economic rivals. Instead of securing a substantial opening for British manufacturers into Spanish America, the Tories left the majority of Spanish commercial exclusions in place. The result was that the economic basis of French power was left intact. Whigs of all social ranks were enraged at the implementation of the Tory political economic vision. The merchants lie off, Oxford complained to Bolingbroke in 1713, deceived by the correspondence and encouragement that party the Whigs give to their friends to hold out and wait for some unhappy accident to unravel all which is done. Many observed the authors of the Examiner centered and rejected the terms negotiated by the Tories who be Petitions, they lamented, swarm almost as thick as addresses. And the Whig party threaten us every day to turn them into remonstrances and to have them backed by the unrepresented multitude. The Whigs loathed the Treaty of Utrecht because they knew it instantiated a Tory territorial empire. The Whigs, too, had fought the war of the Spanish succession in support of empire. Their empire, however, was a manufacturing, not a territorial one. The debate over the Treaty of Utrecht was a party contest over the direction of British empire. Indeed, since the creation of the Board of Trade in 1696, England and then Britain after 1707 had become an imperial state. British politics in and out of doors was necessarily imperial politics. At the same time, the contours of the British Atlantic were, throughout the 18th century, fundamentally shaped by British party politics.